Amen. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. One of my favorites, Miss Jean. Thank you for playing that. When I was in college, uh, one of my uh, religion professors um, made a statement that, that really kind of stuck with me. He said, we have uh, two kinds of canon in the church. Now, uh, canon is what we call the books of the Bible, canonical books, and so forth, uh, those that have been received. He says, we have, we have two kinds of canon. We have the biblical canon, which is what we actually see, the 66 books that we call canonical books. And then we have the actual canon, which are the books that we actually preach and teach and talk about. He said there's a whole bunch of the Bible that you never hear from the pulpits. There's a whole bunch of the Bible that you never see taught in the Sunday school classes and so forth. We, we, there are just those, those sections that we like, you know, and, and as, a, as a preacher, I know uh, one of the more popular sections are, are Paul's letters. You know, Paul's letters are, are deceptively easy to preach because Paul almost gives you the three points in the, in the poem, in, in his writings and so forth, uh, when you're trying to, to write a message. And so uh, we tend to gravitate though, towards those. And then there's whole, but there's whole sections that we miss, whole sections that um, we never dig into. And the result of that, I believe, is that we have a skewed view of who God is. If we believe the Bible is his story, if we believe the Bible is a revelation of who he is to us, then if there's sections of that revelation, if there's sections of that communication that are not a part of uh, our faith, not a part of our preaching, not a part of our teaching, we tend to uh, have a, a lesser view of God than we should. There are parts of him we just don't really appreciate. Now, back in the, the 80s and really took off in the 90s and early aughts, uh, there was a, a practice that began to develop in our missionary circles called Bible scoring. I have a picture of uh, a scarf uh, that is used by our missionaries. Actually, this is straight off the IMB website. You can purchase one of these if you'd like. Um, this is something they use out on the field to tell the story of the Bible. It is. Uh, it starts with uh, before creation and continues all the way to Christ's return. And, and it's especially useful in preaching or teaching to um, a preliterate or a, a illiterate or a semi-literate people, people who don't have the text, who can't read the text even if they had it, you can't really say, turn in your Bibles to such and such a passage. And so what they do is they, they hold up this cloth and they tell the story. They reveal the story of Scripture. And in doing so, they introduce the people to the God who loves them and who desires to have a relationship with them and connect with them. And, and um, when, when I think about that and I think about you know the, the holistic nature of it, how it, how it moves through the entire message of Scripture, I see in that something that is essential, something that um, I think would benefit all of us to be able to just take a journey through Scripture and not necessarily look at every passage and every text and every difficulty or every insight that's there, but to, to get a holistic picture 
of who God is. And so over the next several weeks, that's what I'm going to be attempting with you all. We're going to, we're going to take a journey through the Bible. We're going, to, we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to move all the way through uh, the book of Revelation just to catch a glimpse of all the ways that Scripture portrays God and, and to, to gain some insight and some understanding into, into who He is. And so this morning I want to start where you would suspect I'm going to start, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's a very simple statement for the Bible to start with, and yet there is so much there. And, and in both the, the Hebrew and the English, uh, there's a tendency to stop right after the word God. In the Hebrew, actually, there's a little, there's a little symbol in the Hebrew text that tells you stop for just a second. Pause right here after this word. In the beginning, God. He really is the center of the revelation. He really is the focus of Scripture. It is His story. And we're going to be looking at that and looking at the text in terms of what it reveals to us about, about who He is. And the question I want to start with today really is, what was God doing before creation? What was He up to at that point? What was He taking part in at that point? Now, this is one of those questions that we're not given a lot of, of um, information about in Scripture. There, there's no passage that says, before creation, this is what God was doing. I mean, there's a few hints here and there, and we'll look at some of those. But there's a lot of empty space. Okay? And one of the struggles we have as, as people, as, as individuals, is we don't like empty space. Okay? We don't like the unknown. Okay? Sometimes, you know, when I'm teaching, whether it's in class or here or something like that, sometimes I have to say, we just don't know the answer to that question. And, and I see people um, start to squirm when you say that. You know, they'll ask a question about God or about life or history or whatever and the Bible and how to interpret it. We just don't know. And, and they, they get a little antsy. We don't like that. And, and so what has happened too often in church history is we've tried to fill in those spaces. We're like the Mad Lib. Do you all remember Mad Libs? Okay. One of my favorite activities as a, as a kid, you know, you, you, get this, you get this story that's kind of there, and they ask you for, you know, nouns and adjectives and all these other things, and, and you just get to wildly pick whatever adjective or noun you want, and you put it in, and then you read it, and every time it's a different story because you pick different nouns and adjectives, and sometimes, hopefully, uh, I guess the purpose is it's, it's quite funny, you know. But there's a lot of people that that's kind of their theology. You know, they, 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 they start thinking about certain things they want God to be, or they want their life to be, or they want life to be like. And they start putting that in, that, that information, that, those answers to, to the Bible and to places. And, and they think, man, I, you know, I'm being really spiritual, I'm being really deep, or I'm being whatever here because, you know, I'm filling in those gaps and I don't have as many gaps as I had before, but sometimes the result is almost humorous in what the result is. But in the case of Scripture, 
humor is more of a sad reality sometimes than it is something that, that gives us hope. And so as I, I, I answer this question or, or seek to at least give some answer uh, to this question this morning, what was God doing before creation? I, I want to be careful that we're still staying very biblical in what we have to say. And, and I, and I, I want to start with a question that I think helps us answer the other question, and that is, what do we know about God's nature? You know, when you, when you start talking about someone, um, quite often, uh, if you know someone really well, you can probably know where they are any given time of the day, even if they haven't contacted you, because that's their nature. Okay, um, Maybe they're out fishing, and you know they're out fishing. Why? Because that's their nature. They're going to be fishing. Okay, Or maybe they're working on their land or their vehicle or something like that, because why? That's what they do. Or maybe they're reading a book. Why? Because that's what they do. Or they're watching a TV show or taking a nap or whatever. It's their nature. And so to, to answer the question, in some, at least in part, of what God was doing before creation, I think if we answer the question, what do we know about his nature, we can then uh, begin to, uh, to deal with, with this issue and to answer that question and to, and to gain some insight into where we're headed as we move throughout Scripture. Now, the first truth we have about God that we need to understand is that God is a trinity. Okay. When we talk about this core understanding of God, the nature of who He is, um, there, there's a lot of kind of confusion out there about this reality, but it's very important in terms of helping us understand and, and answer these questions. Now, where do we get this idea of a trinity? What exactly is a trinity? Well, we get this idea of trinity not from any specific verse. There's not one verse that says God is triune and this is how he looked. We get this from what's called systematic theology by looking at various expressions in Scripture about God and then putting those expressions together to come up with uh, an answer that, that fits all the text that we have, all the expressions that we have. Okay, And, and I've just chosen a, a few here this morning for you to kind of see. It, they, they start really with Deuteronomy 6.4. It's, it's a passage called the Shema. Uh, it's the core of Jewish theology and thought. And it starts with the simple sentence, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's just, there's just one God. And, and that really is, that's our starting point for when we start talking about God. We don't serve multiple gods because multiple gods don't exist. There's just one God. And he is Yahweh. He has revealed himself this way. But then you move to the New Testament and you see passages such as the, the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3. 16, 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and the, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then you bring in another passage like 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Now, the Second Corinthians passage does what? It, it places all three persons there, Jesus, the Father, who's called God there, and the Holy Spirit in, in a verse of blessing. Now, coming from Paul, who was strictly Jewish in many ways, he would have held to Deuteronomy 6.4 very uh, clearly. And yet he uses this sentence here to say what? To express blessings which only come from God for all three of these persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the baptismal passage shows us what? That they're all separate. Okay, They're all different. You have the Son being baptized. You have the Father speaking from heaven. And you have the Spirit descending like a dove. Three different persons, and yet we believe in one God. Now, when you start trying to explain this, it's it's super easy to to again try and fill in some blanks that are problematic. What has generally been agreed to as the only appropriate way of describing the, the Trinity is called the Trinitarian Circle or the Trinitarian Triangle. That's a picture of it you see there. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's just one God, and all three of those persons are God. But the Spirit's not the Father, the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit. There are three separate persons. And so when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about this reality. Three different persons, but just one God. Now, how does that work? My simple answer is, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But as you stop and think about it, if you could really explain all there is to God, would he be God? If we could explain the totality of who he is and, and, and everything about him and the way he functions, the way he works, and all those other things, if we could explain all of that, if we could fit all that into our brains, he wouldn't be God. We would be. Because we would be the ones who could explain and who could define and so forth. Now, because of the difficulty of this, there are some errors, some common errors, and I just want to touch on a few of these that, that deal with the Trinity, uh, errors that people sometimes slip into. One is called tritheism. This is the belief that each person in the Trinity is a separate God. This is generally a belief that comes from the outside trying to explain Christian thought or belief system, but occasionally Christians will slip into it as well. Um, generally speaking, if you if you speak to a Muslim about Christianity, they'll say, y'all are not even monotheistic. You're tritheistic. You have three gods. Um, Jews sometimes struggle with this as well in terms of explaining or understanding Christianity and, and its relationship. Okay. And so this is this is a belief that, that simply loses the reality, loses the, the the insight that God is one. A second view. It's what's called partialism. Partialism says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all parts or components of God. This would be similar to, for instance, um, the, the use of the shamrock okay, to explain the Trinity, that you have three leaves of shamrock, but then you have the one shamrock. Okay? Some have said that uh, this was uh, used by Patrick when he was trying to to win over Ireland, 
Actually, the historical data says he, he never actually used that illustration. Somebody at a later period wanted to give it to him, and so they did. But the problem is what? Is that you have the three separate leaves there, um, but no leaf is fully the shamrock. It's just a part of the shamrock. Okay, And when you start talking about this as it pertains to the Trinity, if you say the Son is just a part of the God, no, he's not a part of God. He is totally God. And so you've lost out on the explanation. You, you, you've now entered into error here. The, the Holy Spirit is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. They're not parts or components of God. They are all fully God. And, and that's, that's given to us in Scripture when it says, the very fullness of God dwelled in Christ. Paul tells us that. Okay. The third is what's called modalism. This is probably one of the most common uh, mistakes in terms of the Trinity that, that's out there. It says that God reveals himself in three different forms or modes. Okay, this would be the, the person who stands up before you and says, well, let's say I'm making the illustration. I am a son to my father. I am a father to my son. I am a husband to my wife. I have these three different modes. It's still just me, but I sometimes I'm the father, sometimes I'm the son, sometimes I'm the spirit. This is a very common view, uh, especially uh, common uh, among Pentecostals for some reason. But again, this loses out on some of the truth here because at this point you're not talking about three separate persons. You're talking about three expressions of one person. And so that's that's not consistent with what the Bible says. Three persons, that's how at the baptism you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Spirit. All three are separate and there but they're all three still God. And then the, the last one that we sometimes run into is called subordinationism. This is not so much a problem in terms of dealing with the three as it relates to the one, but it, it's dealing with the relationship. And subordinationism simply says the Son and or the Holy Spirit are less than the Father in nature or being. That somehow they're subordinate to him. Now, the way this applies to the three yet one is if we say the Son is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God, then by nature they can't be less than the Father who's fully God. They are all God. And so these are some errors that, 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 that come in, but, but what's important for us to, to recognize here is, is that the three persons really represent kind of um, three tasks. There are three persons, and each carries out the three tasks. Uh, each, the Father more or less creates the plan, the Son implements the plan, the Spirit administers the plan. Okay, That might be one way to, to deal with it. But again, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. And when we come back to this, we come, come back to our passage this morning, we see what? That all three persons were present at creation. They're all co-eternal, co-existent. There's never been a time when the Father existed that the Son did not, or when the Son existed that the Spirit did not. 
They're co-eternal. John 1.3, a passage that's just a, a few verses after what we read uh, earlier today, says, All things were made through him, talking about Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which means what? He can't be created himself because nothing was made, or nothing was made without him that was made. So the passage there teaches us quite clearly that, that he is eternal self. So when you look at the Genesis narrative, we'll be looking at more detail next week of creation. You see some truths about the fact that all three persons are there. Obviously, the Father is there. The reference to God beginning God created, the reference to God saying this and so forth, we automatically think, we automatically go to the Father. And the, the rest of Scripture bears that out, that the Father was there at creation. But what about the Spirit? As you read on in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit's there. But what about the Son? Well, he's not explicitly mentioned here in Genesis, the John 1, 1 passage that we read this morning, the John 1, 3 passage that I just read, make it very clear that the Son was there as well. So all three of these persons were there before creation. Were present at creation, were there before creation. So as we begin to move into this question about what is God's nature, the essence of what is God's nature and what we learn from that is that God is first and foremost relational. The fundamental testimony about God's nature discovered in the presence of the Trinity at creation is that God is relational. So what was God doing before creation, given this truth? He was relating. The three persons were relating to each other. God is, as I've mentioned before many times, God's self-contained. He doesn't need anybody, any outside relationships. He doesn't need anything else to complete him or to make him whole or to to justify him or to to make him feel significant. He had that before creation. He is relational. And that's going to play a role in again how we understand what's going on then when we step into creation itself. When we start to to step into it. Because one of the questions we deal with is why did God create? If he is self-sufficient, if he is holistic, if he is all that there needs to be, why did he create? And it grows right out of his relational nature, as we'll see in a little bit. But before we get there, I want to ask one other question. What do we know about God's personality? If we're trying to discover what God was doing, if we're trying to discover what kind of drives God and, and who he is, and, and, and understand him as we move into the rest of the text. One of the questions we have to ask is, what is his personality? We know his nature. His nature is to relate. Okay. But what is his personality? And, and again, there are a lot of things we can look at here. I want to look at just two this morning. The first is that God is love. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God 
is love. Now that's a, a big statement about his personality. That's a big statement about his nature. I'm going to read a, a passage to you that you, you all know. You all have heard it. If you've been in this church at all, you've heard it. If you've been to a Christian wedding, you've probably heard it. It's 1 Corinthians 13. But as I read this, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think of this just in terms of God. Think of God as I read this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now think about that. When we say God is love, in that context, within that paragraph, kind of broadens our understanding of his personality, right? He's not someone who is selfish. He doesn't envy or boast. He doesn't need to. When you're as good as him and when you're as whole as him, there's nothing you would envy and there's no need to brag. Not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. So our God is relational and was in relationship before creation. And in the midst of that relationship, in the midst of that expression, his personality played out this way. He was patient and kind. What else is God? God is a giver or giving. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's in God's nature. It's his personality to give. And again, you see that play out throughout creation. We'll look at it more next week in terms of the creation narrative itself, but you see it played out with what? With the sending of the Son. The sending of prophets, the sending of priests, the, the, the sending of the covenant, the communication of who he is. What's he doing? It's each one of those things. He's giving. Let me give to you what you don't possess yourself. Let me give you me. He's giving. He, he's selfless. And there's a purity to that selfless because as, a, as I mentioned earlier, he's whole already. He's complete already. He has the perfect relationship within the Trinity. And so his giving is pure. It's not motivated by what can he get back. It's just, I'm going to give. So what was God doing before creation? What can we say based upon 
what we know of his nature, what we know about his personality. Well, first of all, we can say that God was just enjoying experience, existence, viewing all of eternity. It was just, to put it in, in terms we would recognize, he was just loving life. Before existence, he was just loving existence. Satisfied with uh, his connection. But also seeing the whole of things. We're told in, in several passages that he was making plans for a relationship. Thus, Revelation 13.8, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.18-20, Christ, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.3-7, chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So he was love and life, but also looking at eternity. And we can't really say he was making plans because he was he saw it all already. But he was he was experiencing that. He was experiencing the greatness of all that was. Which begs the question, why did he create? Returning to that question. Why did God create? Number one, God created because he wanted to and he could. Oh, excuse me. I got my order, my, my list mixed up there. Go back to the previous one. It was an outgrowth of his nature and personality. It was an outgrowth of who he is. Psalm 139.13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now next Sunday is the, the right to life recognition of, of that. And while we, don't, we won't set aside things for that, I, I do want to emphasize, I do want to highlight that in fact, there is very much something about us and how God has made us that all of humanity that calls for us to to live on. But I, I want to point to this verse in particular with the whole idea of forming and knitting. The expression of this verse says what? That God is intimately involved in creation. It, again, the idea, you know, um, you see someone who's knitting, they're they're what? They're showing care. They're showing concern about what it is they're putting together. Each knot is important. Each component is significant to make the bigger thing what you plan it to be when you're done. And the idea here is that, that God, when he created, he was very much connected to that. And his nature, and it is what? His nature is relational. And his personality is love and giving. And so creation was just an outgrowth of that. It was a natural expression. It was an extension of the loving relationship that was taking place in the Trinity. Why do you have children? 
It's a natural extension of the love you have with your spouse. Why did God create? It was a natural extension of His nature and personality to reach out in that way. A second reason is because He wanted to and He could. Revelation 4.11, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. Why? By your will, they exist and were created. In other words, John here tells us, why did you create all things? Because you decided you wanted to and you could. So embedded in that, again, is this sense of recognition of, of his power, a sense of recognition of his place and his position. He could do it, and he wanted to do it, so he did. He wasn't manipulated. He wasn't pushed. It wasn't some inner drive that, oh, I need to do this. It was his nature and personality and his power manifested. And then the third reason it's for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. It says here. Because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, Again, it's important to keep in mind what's already been said about his nature with the love and so forth. He didn't create, his glory is not a selfish reality. It's not, oh, give me the praise. His glory is that he is so wonderful, he's so awesome, he's so amazing and overwhelming that that has to be shared. It's not driven by need of his, it's driven by the reality of it simply being the outgrowth of all that he is. So what was God doing before creation? He was enjoying life. But in that enjoyment, in that existence, in that reality, his nature of giving, his nature of love, then resulted in creation itself taking place too. So this, this lays the, the foundation for our journey. What we're going to see as we, we start to move into the text, move into the stories that were actually given in Scripture. We can expect to see God being relational. We can expect to see God being loving. We can expect to see God being giving. We can expect God to see God doing things for us that we can't do for ourselves. And we can expect to see his glory manifested through any number of things. That that's, that's who he is, and so it's what has to be communicated. Now, one other question that might arise at this point, given this whole nature of before creation and so forth, is, okay, he created as an outgrowth of who he is, but he had to know sin was going to come in. Of course he did. So the question then becomes, why didn't he create without a capacity to sin? 
if it's love and if it's relationship and if it's all these other things that are part of this, why would he not remove that that component that's going to restrict the relationship and call wrath to be expressed in addition to love? Why wouldn't he remove that? And and the simple answer to that is the nature of love demands freedom for it to be loved. You can't mandate that someone loves you. Because if you mandate that, then it's not love. It's obedience. But it's not love. And if he is built relationally, then he wants us to be what? Relational as well. That's what he means when he created us in his image. He's given us a choice. And as we look at that choice and as we look at who he is and his nature and his essence, we come to understand what our purpose is. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. Why? Because that's a direct outgrowth of who he is, of his nature and his personality and his relational status. What was he doing before creation? He was loving life. What's he called us to do as people who respond to his gift of salvation? To love life. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He invites us to this relationship. He invites us to experience that kind of love, that kind of life, that kind of relationship, and to do so in its fullest and we do that when we recognize who he is, and we recognize who we are. And when we see the two side by side, we can't help but surrender ourselves to his authority and his position. And by the cross and the resurrection, he's made that possible. He reached out to us, something he had planned before creation, to save us, to rescue us, and to make us his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, I thank you for each person here. I thank you for your love and your goodness, your mercy. I thank you that you are a giver. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you don't need us, but you love us anyway. And I'm thankful that, that I can trust in that, I can rely on that, I can walk with that because I know there's no ulterior motives. All you have and what you've given is what's best for me, what's best for us. Lord, help us to walk in that assurance and that confidence and that truth. And help us to glorify you in our actions and to enjoy you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.